Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to a very Merry Christmas episode of Really True Fiction. Happy holidays, everyone. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, um, George Bailey had a guardian angel named Clarence. What would be the name of a guardian angel for someone named David Parker? Ooh. I like to think it would be like some kind of strong, like Thor-like name. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> some Norwegian thunder god, hopefully. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not surprised that that's your answer. <laughs> George Bailey is a pretty straight down the middle Anglo-Saxon type of name and David Parker isn't that <laughs> divergent Not from that, that notion so no. if Clarence goes to George Bailey what kind of old-timey name goes to David Parker <laughs> <laughs> probably get like a mm, a Fred or something a Fred yeah maybe yeah, Frederick like, like John Bailey is kind of like you know it's a, even a little bit more unique than david parker i feel like david parker is like a john smith you must mean george <laughs> bailey yes george bailey sorry <laughs> i was thinking david john parker i got yeah <laughs> george bailey yes well hopefully uh, your guardian angel out of this uh quagmire will be luke mason as i will there we go get me out of this get me out of this reflection on i feel like uh, my angels. my guardian angel i don't know Maybe yours named. would be a trickster god for sure. Mm, yeah, I, like I a, guess so. No, yeah. I know it'd be uh, like Tom Sawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, a trickster god. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yes, welcome to our really our only tradition on this show yes, is to do a Christmas true. episode. Um, I don't know why, but maybe I've just been uh, overrun with themes for other podcasts I do that I like to keep. This one pretty open to whatever we want to do, but we started. We did the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe two years ago, and we did a Christmas Carol last year. So I thought it'd be fun to do a um, another Christmas one. And I don't know, there's lots of Christmas stories. So probably surprisingly, we haven't done this one yet. But today we're doing It's a Wonderful Life, the 1946 yes. Frank Capra film. This is you know iconic. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's... In the in cinematic history too, I was thinking about how. This is the Citizen Kane of Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. And watching it this time, it was interesting because it wasn't it wasn't as Christmassy as I remember it to be, right? Because really, only the end yeah. of the movie is about Christmas. Yeah, most of it's just about life. Yeah, and I I misremembered how little run of the runtime was actually about him not being there. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the part that really sticks in your head, but it's yeah. not, it's what, maybe a quarter? Not even. I think it's like the last 20 minutes is, yeah. is that. Yeah. And like, it's like a two hour movie. So it's just funny to revisit these old 
because I hadn't probably, I want, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years since I'd seen it last. But because of how memorable and like really the movie's about that last 20 minutes, even though it's actually about all of it, which is yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I forgot that. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about that today, as well as, as, as a, the attentive listener will remember, we also do a, a cheeky little Christmas cartoon to start for fun. So we've done the Gr- <laughs> How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Last year, we did Charlie Brown's Christmas. But this year, it was between Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the claymation type one, and uh, Frosty the Snowman. And you picked Frosty the Snowman. So I don't know. Why, why, why was Frosty... Well, to be honest, it's because I don't remember watching the Rudolph one uh. growing up. And so I was thinking, well, it's a Christmas tradition episode. It should be something maybe that we talk about that, you know, we have right. recollection of. And it's just I have memories of it. Not I wouldn't say like not as big as the Grinch or Charlie Brown. Right. But uh, yeah, no, I that, that's why. I well, and I think the song is so it's still played all the time, right? Like you'll still hear the frosty, the snowman song in, oh, yeah. in stores or on the radio or wherever. Right. So I think the music of, I think kids still sing it. Kids still know it. So I think the fact that it's still kind of in the culture musically makes it seem, but also so is the Rudolph song. So I don't know. I guess you just missed that. Yeah. one. I think, I think, yeah, I think I knew the story of Rudolph and I'd obviously heard all the songs, but just wasn't so much into claymation. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, maybe because like both of them were just. I, I maybe that'll be next year. I don't know. We <laughs> both of them were on TV all the time, and you know, growing up, I, we only had CBC or Global TV, and so like we were hostage as kids to whatever those uh, yeah. stations would play, and um, it was always it was always uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer that was on all the time. So I remember it quite vividly. And uh, the big, the big and snow monster. Up that we're talking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer instead of Frost. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, we just want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. And uh, just before we get started, if you uh, like really true fiction, uh, tell all your friends to quote a 2002 Taking Back Sunday album. And uh, <laughs> great album. Yes, exactly. Probably one of one of their best. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group, Really True Fiction. You can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can find us on all the main podcasting apps. And um, I guess that's it. Still don't have a Twitter because I (laughs) tried to... The the email I made it with for Really True Fiction, we were zero years old, and that's not old enough to have a Twitter account. (laughs) I've gotten better. I I figured figured out how to... <laughs> I figured out how to make the liberal soul have a Twitter account, but um, there we go. But there we go. I have to say, as a sidebar, like actually seeing Twitter now a little bit because I never had a Twitter before liberal soul. Seeing what it is, I can see why people don't want one. It's basically <laughs> like it's like it's weird that we live in an era where we understand how impoverished Twitter is as a form of human communication, and also artificial because it's like it's inherently performative because it's you post something but but everybody can see it right it's like it's essentially like a digital version of the town square which has always you know incentivized the strangest and most outrageous among us so i don't know it's just like (laughs) it's strange that we kind of it's like a collective intentional disassociativeness with twitter 
because you know that it's bad for you and you know it's bad for society, but it's just still there. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I don't well, know. You know, people like to be. I think people like to be entertained. I suppose. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like a lot of Twitter's a soap opera. Like, did you see what Elon tweeted, or did you see what who X tweeted at X? Like, it becomes very. It's more about the relationships between the celebrities and the people involved or even the friends, right? It's like, oh, that was a great tweet. You know what I mean? Like, I guess it becomes so. almost a sport in a sense, I think. I guess so. I, I, my cognitive struggle with it, I suppose, is I, I don't know who's being fooled by it. Like, I just can't imagine anyone being fooled. Like, to me, it has to be like everyone's in on the joke that this is so insincere and a non-form of communication. Like, everyone must know that. So why are we doing it? It's kind of like how I feel about tabloid yeah. tabloid newspapers, right? I don't think... I think you, I think you overestimate people. <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I just... It's so unevolved. So it's also like that part of it is like, we just didn't evolve to communicate like this. So even if someone can't like articulate what they know to be the kind of inherent insincerity in it, they could, I think they can feel it because it's just not, we don't have any, like tabloid magazines or, or newspapers at the checkout at a grocery store or something, you know, bat kid saves race of underground aliens from uh, Clintons or something like this, like a headline like that. Right. Like, there might be, like, a very small fraction of the population that could not cognate on why that just doesn't add up. But most people read that, and then they're like, well, okay. So it's like, I guess, I guess what, like, the best interpretation, Twitter's just for fun. But if it's, so. but if it's for fun, it's, it's doing a lot of damage for something that's for fun. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so probably. that would be, like, the hopefully mature take on though that that's probably not why people come to this show but that would be like my <laughs> like it's just i guess i'm saying it's bizarre to me that something that exists it seems for fun more than anything could be doing so much damage and there wouldn't be like a like a moratorium to think about why that's what that is and i think that that's kind of like something that the social dilemma that that documentary tried to talk yeah. about and that yeah, a lot of, of people thing. like have, uh, have enjoyed well and that tristan that. harris guy who's kind of known as the uh the conscience of silicon valley like that's his uh, yes. abiding nickname i don't know i just think it's interesting because to me twitter is a play right like it's like i'm watching a play and it's just so bad <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's just such a bad play so I don't know. Is it more is it more bizarre than a you know a snowman coming to life though? Well, it would depend on what the symbolism of Twitter is. <laughs> <laughs> because the symbol that's a very good segue, my friend David, to uh, Frosty the Snowman, yes. I mean, if you think about it, why why do we tell this tale at Christmas? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I hadn't seen Frosty the Snowman was one uh, that I hadn't seen in a long time, and I never watched much growing up. I was familiar with it, and I'd definitely seen it before, but it'd been a long time. So basically, the very quick plot rundown of this animation from the '60s, I think, I think it was made in the '60s, uh, is that this group of kids steal or get their hands on a hat of this magician 
in their school and they put it on their snowman and it brings him to life. They're aided by this rabbit, Hocus Pocus. And there's six <laughs> kids. The lead kid is this Karen kid and she tries to get Frosty to the North Pole so he won't melt. Frosty saves her in a greenhouse and then Santa saves everybody. All with much more charm and charisma than I could ever <laughs> describe. And and you know, bring well, we, we we do unfortunately lose Frosty the Snowman, but yes. uh but you know, Santa being the magic of Christmas mm-hmm. brings him back to us. And then and then takes Frosty with him to the North Pole so that he may never die. <laughs> Just yeah. like Santa, I guess. Eternal life. <laughs> so yeah, what was your uh take on this charming little cartoon? You know, I think we just sometimes you get so used to something you forget how bizarre it is. Yeah, I <laughs> guess so. What made me think of what when you were saying how it's bizarre that we communicate this way? It's just like, why do we tell this story of a snowman coming to life and bringing joy and Christmas cheer and 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 then you know being brave and heroic? Like, what is this tale? <laughs> right. Why why have we cho- why have we chosen it? And and I think I, I've been thinking about how everyone is kind of down and there's just this sense of kind of doom and gloom going around. And it's like, I was thinking about the ancient kind of more Celtic stories about fairyland and Mm. all the little, you know, the magic that's hidden in the ordinary world. Right. I think that's why we tell these stories Mm. when you're an adult and you're going through the day to day grind of life and, you know, heartbreak or tragedy or all this kind of stuff you don't want to be telling kids those stories right you want to tell them that there's magic in the world and like i think that's part of why we love christmas so much too so that was kind of the thought that i had watching it was what is it what is the fact that we tell these magic (laughs) these magical stories Mm. what does that say about us why do we do that well so of all of the episodes we've done or, or stories we've done previous to this, the one that Frosty the Snowman reminded me the most of, probably unsurprisingly, is Calvin and Hobbes. You know, there's the kid angle, there's the anthropomorphic uh, yes. best friend, friend that comes to life, yes. you know? And I think it's it's really, it's just that kind of notion of uh, imagination. You know, you you got it there a bit with talking about the fairies. That obviously is a is a uh, endeavor in imagination. The two kind of like big parts of Frosty the Snowman that really, you know, kind of full circle made that point to me was there's the line, the magician says, snowman can't come to life. And the kids say to him in like the best way possible, we don't care what grownups say. (laughs) You know, like that kind of um, kids don't usually put it that consciously when there's some sort of adult or, you know, reality, let's say tramples on their thoughts. They just kind of like you look, they'll, they'll look at you strangely and then go back to their games because they're world building in a sense, yes, right? Yes. Frosty's a world building element. He's a, he's a animistic recreation of all the kind of like ethereal parts of the kid's imagination that we can then see as one coherent object on screen yeah. and follow yeah. because that's what we do. But I think the more important to me, the real payoff of Frosty, and I never knew this before, and it's been so long since I'd seen it, is actually the scene where uh, Frosty saves Karen because Frosty is a, again, a manifestation of the imagination in a very positive sense, right? Like he's this kind of jolly, 
Uh, however the song describes him like this jolly happy you know (laughs) whatever it was (laughs) it's when you know Karen's in trouble and you know out of her element out of her comfort zone it's the manifestation of her imagination that comes back to save her and I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like I've talked about it on other episodes and I've talked to, to you about it a lot, but it's like what it, like I had such a charmed and, and lovely childhood and it was full of imagination. And like, what are the things about that that come back to me now in my mid thirties that are reinvigorating me in a time that is very depressing yeah. <laughs> as well as like, never mind COVID, but just like the kind of crushing weight of adult life that doesn't have that kind of same magic and charm that childhood does because of your kind of like innocence, right? And your naivete about the world, but it's all open to you. Here's a couple trivial examples that for no good reason, but I feel it is that like, as of this recording, Halo Infinite, has just been released the the new xbox game right and it's been six years it's like essentially halo 6 but it's been six years since halo 5 or halo guardians came out and i have i don't have an xbox yet i i'll eventually get one and i'll eventually play it but like i've just been excited again by halo and that's funny because you know that puts me back into the kind of mindset of when i was 14 and i first played halo combat evolved and just remember feeling like wow, this is, and as you know, video games are something that were really important to me as a kid. They've become less so as I've gotten older, but Halo was the last video game that touched my spirit. It was, it was the, (laughs) like in the term, in the terms of like, you know, before that there was all the Mario games, Zelda, Donkey Kong, you know, the more classic Nintendo games, but Halo was the last... The la- yeah, Halo was the last one that embedded itself in my heart so that I care about the subsequent games as we've aged, right? And so with Halo Infinite coming out, I am watching YouTube videos that are an hour long about like the lore of Halo and what the story is so far, which by right. the way, Halo has a great story. That's probably one of the reasons I love it too. Yeah, it really does. It's world building. I got my sister the new Mario Party game for the Switch for Christmas. So, like, I have so many. So, that's all just a really long-winded way of saying I think the payoff of Frosty the Snowman is, yes, children create these imaginative characters, but these imaginative characters also come back to you in your moments that's of weakness. That's so good, Luke. That is like that is a really to really revive good you, one. right? Because Frosty yeah. revives Karen. She, to he revive saves her. you. Yes. And I just, I was surprised at how much I got out of this cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a way that I, I wouldn't have before this way. podcast, right? But I love that. The imagination is what saves her in the end. Yeah. The, the good manifestation of her imagination. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, yeah, you could take the kind of cynical magician in this cartoon. The magician asks, snowman don't come to life. There is no Santa. Reindeer don't fly. You know, that kind of like boring, but boring truth, (laughs) right? Right. The boring truth of it all. Or you could engage into this, like, as you get older, it has to be like intentional uh, suspension of disbelief because you never know which sort of thing you've invested in in your, uh, you know, mental and imaginary life is going to come back to give you some sort of like boost when... yeah. 
when it's yeah, tough. When you need it right? most. It could be Halo, but it could also, you know, be hockey for me or a band I hadn't heard in forever releasing new album. These kind of things that were like really important to me as a kid. And so like that's why that's part of the reason why I like working with kids so much is that I'm like helping to develop and explore those things that are those um, seeds that they're putting in themselves for their own imagination that come back to you. Like imagine being an adult without all of the things we cared about as kids. Like it just, it would be too bleak, right? It would just be too bleak. Yeah. Like even like I was thinking about this and just in terms of stories, right? Since we really are a podcast about stories (laughs) and, uh, and how, the myths that kind of define us in that way. I was thinking about your sweater. Uh, we don't have a, a visual, but uh, <laughs> Luke is wearing a great Christmas sweater with a whole bunch of Star Wars stuff on it, right? And those symbols, the symbols of the story of Star Wars, of hope, of good versus evil, of like the striving and, you know, not leading to fear and hatred. And these mythos or the, or the story of Lord of the Rings of like fighting power but and friendship and all of these things. These are the myths that, that undergird our morality in a sense now. Yeah. They're the stories that, you know, we, we go back to. Uh, how often have you heard someone say, you know, when, when someone's unhappy about how things are going, it's like, well, so do all who live to see such times. <laughs> yeah. But that is not for you to decide, right? Mm-hmm. Or how often do you know you hear people say anger leads to hate mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah i don't know i i think you're right it would be bleak if we didn't have these stories that we use to orient ourselves in in a in a crazy thing called existence <laughs> mm. yeah and i've recently uh started a new job here in in Nelson at the youth center so like it being christmas the last couple shifts have just all been like christmas music on and watching the the cartoons at lunch or that kind of thing and it's just like the kids are just as invested now as when we were kids in it yeah you know and it's really cool and it's like the place is decorated and there's the christmas ornaments everywhere and it's just you know red and green and it's just awesome yeah i was i was a little surprised at how nice this frosty the snowman viewing was and on the point of us uh being an uh, audio only uh, medium that's right that's purely for the uh edification of our listeners eyeballs <laughs> yes <laughs> we would never we would never want to uh, subject our good no. listeners to such no. a debacle that. but yes it is a good christmas sweater and the only other la- the the last thing on frosty that i have that i think was funny is um i couldn't help but sense that the woodland animals inspired South Park with the uh, woodland critter Christmas. <laughs> oh, yes. Which should probably right. actually be one of our uh, <laughs> uh, Christmas bonus episodes. <laughs> because like, you know, the, the woodland critters and Frosty, they, they're in the forest, they build the fire, they keep everything. And it's just like the woodland critter Christmas before they burst. It's almost Satan. identical, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I like to think Matt and Trey uh, got their inspiration from Frosty the Snowman for their uh, devil-worshipping cute animals. Yes, I think <laughs> probably probably they did. Yes. Cool. All right. It's a Wonderful Life, 1946. Frank Capra, wonderful film. Obviously, the main philosophical element of this film is what if you had never existed? What if you had never been born? Whose lives do you touch? And like how kind of unaware of that we are in the day to day. 
So obviously that's going to be like the meat and potatoes of this. But before we get to that, like what other elements of this film struck you other than that main philosophical thrust? Well, I think there's also a, a lot to be said for an even not deeper, but maybe more day to day reflection that it gives, which is like your perspective really matters. Mm, right. Because like when you're when you're looking at his life, like he's looking at it and is constantly disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Every day. And and for some reason is making good choices despite that consistent disappointment with life, which is, you know, I a testament to, I don't know, the human character or something. But funnily enough, I'm always struck by that scene with the knob where he grabs the knob or like, cause it's an old house and the <laughs> yeah. knob comes yeah, off yeah, as yeah. he's like, right. And like, he wants to throw it at one point. And then at the end, he's, he's just, just happy that it's there. And that like this, he loves, suddenly he loves the life that he has. Right. Mm -hmm. But really it's a story of how are you looking at what you have? How are you looking at what's in front of you and how are you choosing to perceive it? Nothing changed. Right. Right. It was just how he saw things changed. Yeah. And it's interesting because the way that the story develops or unfolds to us, the audience is that kind of like, I guess it's Joseph telling Clarence the story of George Bailey. Right. Yeah. So we're getting this condensed and, and in a sense kind of highlighted version of it that George himself probably won't really have access to in yeah. terms of memory. I know. Right. Like, cause we get a, we get a scene, a couple scenes of him as a kid, one saving his brother, Harry, which obviously has ramifications later. There's like a, there's an interesting butterfly effect also. Oh yeah. Element like of it's this like... That, that I felt like, oh, man, is this a progenitor of uh, Ashton Kutcher film? <laughs> but, you know, we get the scene, like, he he saves his brother, and then he informs the owner of the drugstore of his mistake with the drugs. And so we get a few scenes as a kid. But it's like, thinking back on it myself, like, I certainly did some good things when I was a kid, but I can't, like, really, they don't, like... I can't easily articulate, even when I think about it, how they integrate themselves into my life now, right? Like I could retroact. It's just an interesting difference between how an individual person experiences their own life over time versus like how they can put it in a movie, I guess, right? And so, well, yeah, and then I think that 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 occurred to me because that lends into the point you're making of how it's hard to have perspective on that, yeah. right? Because the experience of living makes you forget some of the things you do. <laughs> Obviously, there's oh, all the you. time, right? And even if you don't forget it, sometimes you just straight up look at it wrong, mm. right? right? You when you're when you you're wrong or or not even wrong necessarily because because it's a perspective thing. It's mm -hmm. literally a how you're looking at it or what angle you're looking at the thing from or what attributes you're choosing to focus on, right? But it changes everything. Mm -hmm. It changes entirely how you feel about your own life. And that's a that's a that's a big message if you think about it. For sure, it's 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 literally like, hey, you you know that that prison that you're keeping yourself in that that cage, that's your own mind. Mm -hmm. What did you think about the kind of theme of this? One of the themes that was interesting to me was how George always kind of wanted to leave, right? Like he always wanted to get out of 
I guess is Bedford Falls or New Bed- is it New Bedford Falls or just I think it's just Bedford Falls. Anyway. Yeah, I think it's Bedford Falls and then in his, you know, <laughs> yeah, in his he's no longer in existence yeah. phase, it's Pottersville, but <laughs> Yeah, so what did you think of the theme around like him basically wanting to always leave, which is fine, but also like he wanted to leave because he thought the real world was out there somewhere, right? Like you could it, there just seemed like an element to me of um George feeling like if he traveled somewhere or he went to college or went somewhere else out in the world, he would, you know, for lack of a better term, find what he was looking for. Right. Yeah. And well, I'll get your thought on that before I share mine, but I thought that was like a really important, if a little bit understated part of the movie. Yeah. I mean, that's the perspective thing, right? It's if you're always looking outwards and it's, it's interesting how it finally breaks him. Mm-hmm. right like you find but what actually breaks him isn't that he didn't get those things right it's something tangible in his day-to-day life yeah that smacks him in the face and then he spirals into this whole well i never got what i wanted i never got to achieve these things and if you think about that i was thinking about i was looking at his life he's got a beautiful wife and a romantic tale tons of friends is a leader in his community and you know has a family all of these things right Mm -hmm. like in some ways this is a very strange story because it's it's actually a story of someone who has everything (laughs) and is wasting it destroying it with their you know with wanting to be somewhere else and literally poisoning the goodness of their own lives with uh expectations we've talked about this before right Right. about having expectations being the cancer of joy Mm -hmm. and i think in this case there are a lot of people with way more miserable lives than george bailey right right oh for sure like like, (laughs) that's the weirdest part of the whole thing you're looking at his life (laughs) and you're like actually you've got it really good man like yeah well and even like Sure, it's awful to have misplaced $8,000 and probably even more so in 1946, right? But, yeah. like, that's an overcomable thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, wow, this is like, I can imagine a much further down rock bottom than this for this guy. <laughs> but, but you know I what? Know. Like, it's it's also the sensibilities of a movie from the 40s. Like, maybe they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't have made it much darker than that, I suppose, at the time right right that's a good point that's so good point. but it, it, it you know it does strike our modern <laughs> I, I love that sensibilities as a little bit common much further down rock bottom than that yeah yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah so okay I, i'll try to untangle this a bit in my mind but like i i see that kind of mentality of george's as the kind of like beginning of what we might now call the yuppie attitude which is that desire, like, and, and it's like maybe particularly American one, where it's like that desiring of wanting something out there. Yeah, it reminded me of some some stuff Emerson wrote in the essay Self Reliance, where he was kind of chastising travel, and it wasn't he he different. Emerson very clearly differentiated between like positive forms of travel, which are done for like educational purposes, learning about the world, expanding your kind of like understanding of other places. I think he says you travel as a sovereign, not as a finding yourself type of person. Right. His yeah. line there is my giant goes with me wherever I am, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, 
Whereas yeah. the kind of more George Bailey slash yuppie is is a much more kind of like solipsistic version of that, right? It's not done for exploratory edification. It's done to like, as again, find yourself, right? And that's just kind of what it, it becomes funny once you externalize it to be like, well, you know, what are you trying to find? Like, what are you going to go find out there, George, that you can't think about now? What brand new, unfathomable concept could you come up with by inherently going somewhere else to do that, right? And like, what will that do for you if you can't actually think about that now? Well, and it, it goes back to this whole thing that I've really thought about a lot, like just on a really personal level is I lived almost my entire life in the future, mm. in future dreams, I would say. I think, I don't know if I've talked about, I think I've talked about this before, but I can't, we have a lot of episodes. I can't remember everything that's been said. <laughs> yeah. But that's no way to live. It's tough. But you can't, right? Because then it's the same as we've talked about with internal and external locuses of control, right? But if really what you're living for is this idealized version of yourself in the future, anytime you feel like there's a blockage to getting there or an obstacle, it can dis discourage you. And anytime like your emotions are, no are now tied to external factors because right. your sense of identity hasn't been realized. So you're not in that Emerson place of your giant going with you wherever you go, mm -hmm. because your giant is in the future. You don't, you don't see your current self as a giant. Your and you don't know what it is. Yeah. And so he's attaching his value to it. Mm -hmm. Right. So who does George Bailey believe that he is? He believes he's an adventurer who explores the world and builds things. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to do. That's my dream. Mm -hmm. And his misery is because as he's focused on that, saying, this is who I am. Reality is saying this. That's not who you are. In fact, it's so not who you are that when given the choice between that and something else, you always pick the other thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like you're delusional. <laughs> well, maybe to be more fair or kind to George about it, he he actually I think he's just ignorant of it. Right. Yes. More than yes. delusional of it. Because he's he's very similar to me in the uh as the characters in the Wizard of Oz, which are, you know, the car you know, uh, the 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 scarecrow needing a brain. Tin Man needing a heart and the uh, Cowardly Lion needing courage. And yet, as they go about their travels, the Scarecrow has all the good ideas. And the Tin Man has all of the compassion for the creatures that they come across. And the Lion yeah. is the one who stands up to the bullies. So obviously, the things are already in them, right? And yet, they're going to the Emerald City to, you know, quote unquote, those find things. those things, right? So it's like, um, I guess there's that kind of... Um, false sense of teleology again uh, that uh, we've talked about before. But also I was thinking a little bit about a, an additional wrinkle into this. And this is like not so much about George. It's more of a cultural critique, I suppose. But there's a, in the This is Water speech by David Foster Wallace, he talks about how in the West and in America most specifically, but in, in Western capitalistic countries more generally, the kind of overarching society you live in doesn't make it hard for you to overcome that solipsism, right? And in fact, it very much 
<laughs> encourages it because it's very profitable. And so David Foster Wallace says, don't look to certainly the majority of your institutions or your advertising to help you overcome that imperial aloneness that you feel because they make a shit ton of money on it. They want you to feel <laughs> yeah, that Yeah, they way. want you to feel that way. So like, to me, if I was going to put on my sociological hat, there's, and this is not a, exactly a sociological movie, but it's a little bit of that in that, you know, the kind of Potter-esque character and the more broad kind of like business and loans and all of that, like... I was I, I tried to think about it in a more modern context, like, okay, so like the housing crisis of 2008, like, it's not like the people who were doing that in, you know, the leading up to 2008 crisis were mm, giving the potential buyers all the war, all the psychological and cognitive warnings around what's going on. No, right. In fact, the opposite of that is the case. And so I also wanted to like, think about that a little bit is like, what what do you think are some antidotes to cultural forces that encourage or certainly don't discourage that kind of desire to find yourself to be out there? Because really, a lot of people will make money off of that. Oh, that is a really good question. And I think ultimately, it comes from suffering. Hmm. Like, I think that until you've embraced suffering... You can't get, you can't escape that solipsism. Right. Right. Like you're going to be chasing the next high. You're going to be avoiding pain. You're going to be seeking. And there's nothing wrong with seeking comfort either. Like I think comfort, you know, Mm -hmm. has a huge place in life, but you're, you're not going to be awake to in a sense, the tragedy of your own existence, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean when you're avoiding reality, you're going to want to distract yourself. And that's how people make money off people distracting themselves from reality. Right. If people were like genuinely engaging in meaningful relationships with the people around them, they wouldn't need the the people who are don't spend a lot of time on social media. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) It's just a fact, you know, if you were really content with your life and like everything was kind of beautiful, you wouldn't be shopping all the time for new things, Mm -hmm. right? Because you would just be so happy. Yeah, but so yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I, you know, I don't find myself allied too often with a ton of leftist criticisms about the market and capitalism. But what I think that's really strong, maybe the strongest is the kind of like nucleus of modern capitalism around consumerism and yeah. flattering the self, almost making um, the customer the product, right? Well, if that I mean, makes sense. Because that's kind of what, if you think about it, the, what are the biggest companies in the world? They're Facebook, right. Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're companies that don't, that the, the consumer or the user is the product. And, you know, someone said this to, to me over Christmas that I just blew me away. It's like, they're the only one, they're, they're one of the only groups of people that call their consumers users. You right. know what the other group that, that calls them users Drug is? dealers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy yeah, if you yeah, think yeah. about it. But it's just funny. Like, don't you, I, I find it really funny that like car commercials, they're like selling you the experience of being out in the woods. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like there's something so funny to me about using nature in your commercials to sell a 
artificial product, right? Or an artifact of some sort. Or well, you know, it's funny they've probably done so many focus groups and like looked. Telus uses baby animals to sell phone plans. You know, and it's like that's, you know. I don't think it's dishonest exactly because it's, you know, that's bracketing off child advertising, which I think there are laws for. So that's good. But like, it's an interesting thing to me. And almost maybe it made me think (laughs) this feels like a very far afield from It's Wonderful Life. But it makes me think about like, is there a self-corrective mechanism within market-based, free market-based capitalism that can correct for financial incentive that doesn't easily or directly or very clearly bring um, what we would call value or positive externalities into the world for anything beyond, you know, the transaction, right? Like, I, I don't know, like, to me, that's one of the best, if not the best argument for regulation, I suppose. Yeah. So like, I don't know, like, this is a more social topic, but and you're, you know, more, but what do you think about all that? Well, it's interesting, actually, because I think that is part of the message of it. It's a wonderful life underlying one of the themes, let's call it, Mm. that really makes people enjoy it, which is who is George Bailey? He's the guy who stands up to, you know, Henry Potter and and the capitalist who only wants money. And if you look at the dystopia that George, who's standing up against the capitalist tyrant, the utopia that Potter creates or like the dystopia that Potter creates is all casinos and like go-go bars. And it's just like life is degraded to what makes money and flashy neon lights and yeah. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. And, And it's very kind of like in your face, critique of making bedford falls las vegas of the east kind yeah, of yeah exactly right it's <laughs> it is it is a it's a critique of consumerism mm-hmm. in a sense vice-based consumerism yeah. it's, a, it's moralizing it is moralizing yeah maybe this is just a purely i don't obviously see anything inherent into free market capitalism that can counteract that do you know yeah. what i mean like how would that happen i guess what, oh yeah. Let's let's tackle our imaginations. Like, how could a non-interventionist? And maybe the answer is there isn't one. Like, this is something that interventionism in markets and economics is good for, is dealing with those kind of things. Well, really, when we say something like "good for," we have to under ask ourselves what are our first principles, right? What right. are what are our objectives, right? Because morality is measured by you know that there's a reason that sin in the Hebrew is missing the mark. Right. right. It's it's not achieving the, you know, the lawful outcome, the under the law. Mm-hmm. So if we think about what are the moral objectives? Well, if the moral objectives are making sure that people don't get brainwashed or less people fall through the cracks or 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 that, you know, advertising doesn't cause existential discontent. I mean, yeah. these, these are complex questions for a complex world. If those are our objectives, then I think overregulation, not overregulation, regulation is is an answer, is it an answer? Mm-hmm. And and I mean, look at how we got rid of acid rain. We decided that, you know, the or freedom... Or lead in the paint. Yeah, yeah. We decided that the freedom of the free market didn't really matter when health externalities existed. Yeah. Right? Uh, and and when it was existential for humanity, we 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 took away people's freedom. But if your objective is freedom, then you know you you go on the other side, right? And maybe you think human ingenuity is going to solve all the problems. And I think the problem is 
one that you've discussed a lot and has really changed my way of looking at things, but it's that complexity is doesn't allow for simple answers. Yeah. Right. The more you zoom in on the quadrants, there's more quadrants. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. And I think we're definitely suffering under the uh, kind of like oversimplification of regulations right now in our society. No, for sure, <laughs> for sure we are. And 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 part of part of what where the you know the let's let's say the unvaccinated, for example, what where their biggest beef with government is right now is that they there's the nonsensicalness to a lot of this hmm. that is causing distrust. Right. Right. It's and 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 when when you're rules don't line up with common sense and probably like one of the greatest examples right is like wear a mask while you're having sex oh right it's like <laughs> okay yeah we've really lost the plot here why, why is this even being said right like who, <laughs> who decided to put this in here yeah it's like an onion article yeah so <laughs> so I, I guess on a really meandering way of saying in a wonderful life is is making first principle claims like money isn't everything. I think a lot of people agree with that. Right. <laughs> Archetypes are being displayed here, right? Mm -hmm. Like money isn't everything. One of the ones we talked about earlier, you know, constantly dreaming of, of fulfillment and everything outside of your life is actually bad and you should appreciate what you have. Maybe if you actually took a look at, maybe if you were actually a good person, like this is the, this is the most striking part for me mm. is George is actually a pretty good person. Yeah. Right. He's pretty self-sacrificing. He cares about others. Every moment we're given by this Joseph to Clarence storytelling is of a moment where George sacrificed his own well-being for somebody else. Yeah. Or usually for a group of other people. Mm hmm. It's like, yeah, if, yeah, if he's not in the fabric of space time, that's going to have a lot of ripples. That's going to be a big <laughs> butterfly effect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But what about, the guy who's down on his luck and nothing's ever gone well. And he's, you know, he never went really went to university and he never really got a job. And it wasn't, wasn't because he didn't think about it. It just kind of life happened to him. Mm -hmm. Does this count as a time travel movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of, but not really, I guess. Not really. Not <laughs> really it's, no. it's actually more of a fantasy than a, or a, yeah. a dream, I it guess. Is, it's, yeah. It's a, um, it's a Magical realism. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, maybe to just like put a bow on this thought, when I think about like what the message of, you know, that speech by David Foster Wallace and a lot of Emerson's writing, uh, and I'll just stick to them because that's the ones I brought up for this episode. It's like that kind of um, shocking you back into your existential vibrancy and vitality, right? Like, and I, and I just, I guess... And, and that's one of the major themes of It's a Wonderful Life is that George is out of touch with his existential place in the world. He's misaligned yes. to it. You know, yeah. he's missed the mark, if you will, with with that existential kind of um, perspective. And uh, I just feel like that is one of, uh, that's probably, in my opinion, the deepest problem with our culture right now is that these very real and important problems such as like what to do about COVID or social justice or politics in general are all kind of symptomatic of the deeper anxiety around. We don't really know what we're doing anymore. Like there yeah, isn't, have, there yeah. isn't really a, I don't want to use the term meta narrative because I think that has connotations. I don't exactly mean, 
but there isn't a kind of existential placement anymore driven by something like a meta narrative for people, right? Douglas yeah. Murray has talked about this a, a significant amount, and there's a great book uh, by a French philosopher, I think her name is Chantal Delassalle from the early 2000s, called Icarus Fallen, where which is yes. about if Icarus has survived the fall, uh, what do we do now? And she places that as uh, modern Europeans have lived through every ism, and they've all failed, and yet here we are, what do we do now kind of thing, <laughs> right? Like all of the grand ideologies and all of the most dogmatic and intense forms of religion have been tried in Europe, and they've all ended in suffering and horribleness what do we do now right like so you know it's a wonderful life you know it's george bailey wanting to find himself or or like again not feeling that existential placement because he doesn't have that thing and then you know covid regulations politics identity politics social justice QAnon, all of these things it does like it, it it's not no political aisle has a monopoly on the crazy trying to find yourself existentialness that's going on in our culture right now you know to plug a different podcast i do that's kind of what i hope the liberal soul is the uh, not an antidote but like a uh, i'm thinking about that more than anything like that's what i'm thinking about the most is what is a post christian post marxist post islam post benign liberal democracy post all of this, what's that supposed to be like for our our feelings and our thoughts and our mental <laughs> life, right? Like, how do we reconcile? Can you go into that more? I really like that. That's really good. <laughs> well, I don't know. Just like, what can we hold on to when everything else has gone? What can you hold on to when everything else has, has let you down, has failed you, Yeah. right? When everything else has gone to the gulag or burning at the stake or thrown off Twitter or, or, or you've been fired. Like what can you hold on to? And I don't know, like it's a, it's a exploration, but it is similar to what George Bailey finds, which is, you know, people who love you, the sincerity of children, the kind of like a wry, the wry sincerity of a Clarence type, I suppose. I guess I really like wryness in my sincerity. (laughs) (laughs) But also, like, you know, I I try to talk to people in the liberal soul about their passions. Like, if left to their own devices, what do they go do in their free time? And I've had friends on talk about mountain biking. Obviously, I've talked to Zach about music. I talked to Cole recently about Christopher Hitchens because it was his anniversary, 10-year anniversary of his death, all this kind of stuff, right? Like, I don't – I think – you want to talk about missing the mark. Our biggest problems are actually the fact that we don't have – a positive thing to live for. We have a lot of negative things to fight. And I, but we don't have a I'm, positive. I'm very, I'm using the word negative in the list, you know, negative to a particular maybe partisan attitude. But like, what well, is, okay, but what is the way, thing Jen, to go for? Because if you look at a wonderful life, there's a, there's a very clear answer given there for that. Yeah. Right. Family. Family. Yeah. For sure. Family. But also like community. Because that's what he's most concerned about. It's family for sure, but also placement in a matrix of people. Relationships. Yeah, relationships. Importantly, in It's Wonderful Life, those relationships have to be not perfunctory. 
right? Or, or transactional. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, our very first episode, Cat's Cradle, of the difference between a Karas and a Grand Falloon, right? Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. like, he yes. finds his family, his kids, his wife, Mary, even some of his old friends, his brother, like, you know, in Vonnegut language, those are a Karas, whereas Potter just has Grand Falloons kind of thing. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to phrase it yet because I feel like I'm staring at the edge of something that I don't quite understand yet. But it's what is that next existential philosophy, I suppose, that is needed in a culture that can't believe in the supernatural anymore and can't believe in the divinity of a political agenda anymore either, right? Like the cynicism wrought, the cynicism wrought by the failure of every sincere movement in history is a really, it it breeds so much of what we see in the world today, the distrust and the, and the dishonesty and the, okay, nothing matters. So I'll get mine. And we get tribal and baser. And I just, I, I hope to find and continue to find the things that can be the next existential vibrancy that uh, Icarus needs to find once fallen. This movie is one of the movies that makes you think about that, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting that within the context of the movie, it's the losing of the $8,000. Right. That kind of breaks him. It's the, it's the, it's actually the fear of tangible reality collapsing that breaks him. Mm Mm-hmm. And like his, but the interesting part is that it's that breaking that provides the catharsis to get him to the other side of appreciating <laughs> what he has in his life. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. We should move into that part because I think that's the most memorable part is like, uh, what are people's lives like if you're not in them? You know, and, yeah. and it's a hard game to play for yourself, but um, the great scenes of, it's Pottersville, not Bedford Falls, because no one stood in Potter's way. And, you know, Mary seems a lot less happy without George More, there. Yes, and, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, there's like the the fact that he didn't save Harry from drowning. So, I mean, it's a little bizarre, like, because it's hard to imagine that everybody else's life went the same way without George <laughs> there. Like, yeah. Harry still drowned even though George was there, but like maybe George being there is one of the reasons they go sliding in the first place. Like, I don't know. You just have to forget about that. <laughs> Those, that's the problem with every time travel movie or thing. Where's right? your suspension of disbelief? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Harry's not there to say be a war hero. And so, like, all these soldiers die. And, and, you know, his mom's bitter and all this kind of stuff. And um, getting over the kind of goofy dialogue of that point where George really doesn't seem to get it for like, he has to visit like seven or eight people who give him the same response before he think he believes them kind of thing. Yeah. Like yeah. Th- the first couple give him no clues. Anyway, it does make you think, okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's psychologically difficult to understand about this is that we all can kind of understand talking about someone when they're not there right like you the the low form of that is gossip the higher form is praise or or encouragement or like oh there's someone who has a good idea so in reality people are talking about us all the time not all the time but like it it, you know it comes up but we never find out about it right like we just don't know often what we mean to other people 
good or bad. I thought this movie made me think so well, and maybe this is just a development of my psychological understanding, it's like how easy it is for George to actually be ignorant of these things about himself to other people, right? Like, that's actually so easy. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, who, that, it's that, even sitting here, thing, who right? knows what many people in my life think about me that, or have said about me that they've never said to me, right? right. Like, it, and, you know, not to be self-indulgent, I'm, it happens enough because it happens to everybody, right? Anyone who makes an impact on anybody's life. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a ramble, but like, I guess, what what is the antidote to that? Better thinking, <laughs> better communication, like telling yeah, I people, don't, like, well, I, I, telling no, people I, more I, what you I think, think about individual. them. I think I think it's it's perspective, right? Right, like it doesn't matter how many times I say, you know, what a great guy you are, or how thoughtful I think you are, or mm. or all the you know all the positive things I see in you. If you don't believe those things are true, it won't matter what I say, right? Right. It's one of those love things, right? Where it's like. It's that it's the deep and actual complex truth of that trite saying of you got to love yourself, right? right? Well, it's like, well, actually, if you don't genuinely come to appreciation about things about yourself and, and look at yourself a certain way and have perceptions about who you are, as you're stumbling down this road of life, you know, you're not going to be able to receive the goodness that other people want to give you. For example, like Mary was in love with, george for so long and like she you know the one of the first scenes is i'm gonna be in love with you forever george bailey right yeah Into yeah yeah, year, right? Year, yeah. <laughs> yet he couldn't see it he was blind to it because right. and blind even probably to the significance of it mm-hmm. until his perspective changed it didn't matter that she admired him and like she didn't get mad at him when he had to go to his job like this is a very strange movie in a sense right because it's like <laughs> A lot of modern Christmas movies would be like, oh, he, you know, prioritized his job over an important day in his family's life. And then he learned that no family was the thing you needed to prioritize. That would be a common. This one was, oh, there was a crisis going on. He went in, he's helped solve the crisis. He was exhausted and it deeply impacted what he'd wanted to do for his honeymoon. He wasn't even able to do his honeymoon. They spent his honeymoon money on doing this. And yet his wife wasn't like, oh, I can't believe this has happened. She tries to create a memory and a beautiful moment mm-hmm. to show her love and appreciation for him. Mm-hmm. And then says, this is what I wished for. And that's not enough for the guy. Or, you know, when he's reaching his moment of crisis. Yeah, and I guess um, it just occurred to me while we were while you were saying that, like, to really tie this into what we're talking about with Frosty the Snowman, like it's it's really a lack of imagination that George is suffering from, which is really what solipsism is, I suppose. Yeah, uh, is that is that lack of imagination that there would be this presence that he has in the lives of his family and in the lives of his community and the people he's helped. He just seemed incapable of thinking about those things when a crisis hit, right? Yeah, and that's interesting because I guess. That's like a a skill that I don't, I guess, I mean, not to be cliche about it, but that's the kind of skill that a vibrant liberal education is supposed to inculcate in people. Like that is actually, and I'm borrowing again from David Foster Wallace, that is the point of a a liberal education, is the ability to to overcome solipsism, basically, to have a more imaginative take 
But really, that's what science is, is a system to overcome solipsism. Because you can get emotionally attached to theories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, once you've developed a theory and you are like, this is a true thing, it becomes part of your identity. Apropos of nothing, but I had a great experience in this, actually, in my, like, one of my last weeks. I think it was my second last week living in South Korea. A bunch of friends, we did a, a kind of murder mystery party. I think there's like 40 of us, and we all had our own unique character and backstory and clue finding, etc. right? And like, it's it the, to play through the game takes about two, two and a half hours. And that whole time, you're so invested in your story, and you're so invested in the people in your story, who you have to interact with, the people yeah. you have clues about, the clues you have, the things you learn, right? In the back of your mind, it's kind of like, well, you know, there's so many people. I don't know. But, like, the reveal was the killer was someone I hadn't met the whole game and had no overlapping kind of, like, maybe one or two, right? It caught me off guard because my reaction wasn't, oh, it couldn't have been this person. My reaction was, oh, I never talked to that person. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so, like, that murder mystery game was actually a great educational thing for me where I was like, oh my gosh, how many things am I involved in where I think it's about me and it has nothing to do with me, <laughs> right? And like, it's so simple when you put it that way, but I think right, like it's yeah. an actually really useful exercise and, you know, I can extrapolate that into more things like reading books makes you, th- like, you know, we've talked about how, like reading George Orwell writing about the working class in, in Northern England in the 1930s, wow, those people's lives had nothing to do with me and they were really important to them. And that's a useful thing to think about, you know? And and once you realize that, I guess, maybe this is the transcendent moment for George Bailey is once he realizes that he's meaningful to people, but I don't know how to phrase it exactly. He's not so important that the world goes on without him, but he also needs, but, but without him, there are going to be some people who suffer. Right. So it's kind of like if we can figure out how to each take care of our own, we can let go of the more grandiose plan of taking care of everything kind of thing. And there's that it's that sweet spot in between those that is like the end of the movie where George can discover that he finds his place in the world and his kind of like existential expectations of himself are more aligned with reality, which is a more clinical way of putting it. But you know what I mean? <laughs> well, and that's the uh, that's the catharsis that the movie provides. It was even I watched it with my dad when I was watching it for this time. Yeah, and he said to me, "This movie is uh, has comforted me a lot over the years, right?" And it's and I think it is a it's but it's a, but I think the comfort is that place, knowing the place, mm-hmm. and knowing that the place has significance. Yeah, for sure. And then to touch on the fact that. It does end on Christmas or Christmas Eve. Later today, I'm going to do a little shorter recording for the Liberal Soul on my opinions about Christmas, but just how Christmas is that time to to borrow the line from Dickens, to look on other people as fellow passengers to the grave and not a race of other creatures. Yeah. And yeah. I'll put it to you this way. There is something in the essence or the spirit that nucleus of christmas there's something in that that is also part of that existential next step i'm talking about in the world and whatever that is i'm trying to find it because it's not it's not just purely like self-sacrifice at christmas it's something like um mutual 
appreciation of the existence of the other that right. is so I mean beautiful and gifts, lovely right yeah. so I think that this it's just cool of course that it ends at Christmas because Christmas is that time at its best it's that time of uh holding close and and like re-remembering what you want to hold close I guess yeah. and and of course it's surrounded by the things that are most important to people which are like music and good food and friends and family and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, all of that is part of the thing that needs to be the next thing that Icarus flies to. Right. But, and and denuded, denuded of it's like provincialism and it's like, this is our thing, not your thing kind of thing. So that's, I just liked that. And so any, any other thoughts on this film? Well, I just I think it's it's a it's a cautionary tale for a lot of people. And I, you know, especially in this time where maybe we aren't looking at things right right now. Right. Maybe maybe the problem is in your own perspective. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like uh, true. At the best of times. I know, but I, I think it's a really good way of highlighting that truth, let's say. Mm-hmm. He he was existentially misaligned. Yes. And Ex- he needed a guardian angel to existentially align him. Or, no, no. <laughs> exactly. He needed a guardian angel to help him reflect on how to existentially align himself. Because yes. it is, no one can do it for you. But... No it's good to have mentors or people to talk to or people who can help you with that. Right. So I think those are the most, well, fellow passengers on a journey to death, you know, (laughs) you probably want people who figure out how to walk at least. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe on a lighter note, there were a couple really funny parts of this movie. I thought it was worth bringing up just, you know, cause we're not all we're not all passengers to the grave on this podcast. Sometimes we're um, we get lives too. Sometimes we're passengers to go sledding at the cemetery. Yes, because yes. <laughs> in Nelson it's on a hill. Uh, <laughs> so there's a line um, early in the movie where George Bailey says, "Most of my friends have finished college," and it reminded me so much of Luke Skywalker complaining about how yeah, all of all his the friends are all doing their thing. <laughs> all and his I'm friends are at the academy. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, there's a Star Wars line. And um, I thought the, I I forgot how charming and like awesome in cinematic history the swimming pool scene was where they're dancing. And uh, like, I'd forgotten it even happened. Forget the story. Like, that's just awesome movie moment. Yes. In the history of film, right? Like, how everyone jumps in and goes swimming. Like, so, so good. And all of the references to Mark Twain. Were enjoyable yeah. because yeah, you know, Mark we've done those books and we, we know it a little bit better. And uh, you probably noticed that the cop's name was Bert and the uh, cab driver's name was Ernie. So I had to feel like that was influential. <laughs> I too. didn't notice. It, oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. So like, there's a Bert and an Ernie working together at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Good. I guess also I loved that. Um, his daughter gave him those rose petals because I've just recently received some presents from kids I've worked with and how I'm just such a sucker for that. 
<laughs> you right. know, and how nice it is. Yeah. And so I totally get that feeling that he was showing with all that. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, this movie is, it's hard to have like um, novel insights on because this is our, this is one of the most talked about movies of all time. Yeah. Because of its age and its relevance and its, you know, Christmas appeal. But it's just so existential and yeah. solipsism destroying in its yeah. message that it's so crucial, I think. I, I just, I came away from both Frosty the Snowman and It's a Wonderful Life thinking they're even better than they were when I went into them, which I thought they were already great. So I don't know. Like, that's a cool feeling, too. <laughs> I know. Right? I definitely, like, was very impacted by the just the power of how good that story is and it just transcends all time right it doesn't matter that it's old or black and white and anything like that you're just you're enraptured by the quality of what's being said yeah for sure so merry christmas to all of our merry christmas, listeners <laughs> and happy holidays this will be our last episode of almost certainly our last episode of 2021 and uh this has been one of the more trying years of my life, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not big on like, oh, everything will get, you know, I, I don't really cut my life up in the calendar year type of thing. Whereas like, oh, no. I'll flip over the calendar is a new thing. But I do like that we're going into our third year of this podcast. That's kind of a yeah. cool feeling. I really, I guess in the spirit of this movie. I really appreciate you doing this podcast with me, David, and reading the books and watching the movies and thinking deeply about the stories that have shaped our culture and our lives. Because I also think that's one of the things that's part of that next thing that yeah. our hearts need after the death of all of these isms. So... Thank you. I, yeah, we need we need to bring that back somehow. It's been lost in the in this in the materialism, I think, a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this has been an, another very happy and uh, our mono tradition of Christmas episodes <laughs> on, uh, of really true fiction. My name is Luke Mason, and my name is David Parker. And may the merry force be with you, <laughs> and also with you. <laughs>